0: doing career development as a solo sport is a mistake. The more people who are in your corner who have an eye out for you, are, like the better.
1: Welcome to Impact Chats, a responsibly different podcast sharing conversations with industry leaders, leveraging business as a force for good. a job that loves you back. It's one that you feel great about doing and that allows you to live the life you want. On the show today, we are going to be talking about some key steps you can take to find a job that loves you back. We've gotten some notes from you, our audience, asking the question, how can I find a job that allows me to do meaningful work and live the life I want? To answer that question today, our guest in this episode is Justin Wright. The CEO and founder of B Corp Certified Habitus Incorporated and co-author of the book, Finding a Job That Will Love You Back. His expertise is in collaborative negotiation theory, behavior change, multi-party facilitation, mediation, and career coaching. Justin is a former adjunct professor of negotiation at Yale and Northeastern's Business School. He has mediated over 150 cases since training in 2011. And some of his past clients include Danone North America, Cabot Creamery, and Netflix. But what does negotiation and behavior change have to do with finding a job? Everything. In this episode, Justin walks through three key steps you can take to take finding a job from a lonely slog of a task to a fun and collaborative team sport. Justin, to get us started, can you share with us your journey to Habitus and starting that and the work you do today?
0: Totally. And I think this can't help but be a little bit of a segue into what we're going to talk about with career development, because my journey was not direct or easy. So I studied political philosophy, economics, and ethics in college, thinking that I would get into social justice or environmental sustainability work when I graduated, and I did some of that work and realized that being able to negotiate effectively, run good meetings, manage conflict was going to be a vital skill set for me to be useful. And I think I had this delusion that if you just had the right theories, then everything would be fixed. Like somehow the parts of our society that weren't working were because we were working off the wrong theories. Mm. And that's, I do think theories matter, but that's definitely not like the only challenge. And so I realized that there was this interpersonal component that was going to be really important for me to have the kind of impact I wanted to have in my life. And so I moved to Boston because Boston has a critical mass of researchers and thinkers on conflict management, negotiation, how to run good meetings, stakeholder engagement, all of that stuff. And it is an amazing place to learn as a consequence. But also, it's a terrible place to work. Because everyone who learns this in the academic context, which I hadn't, then tries to get a job doing this in Boston. And all of the people who teach those university classes run consultancies, and they prefer clients in Boston. So I I did the right thing, in a sense, because I ended up learning a ton. But I actually put myself up against a much harder barrier trying to find work in that space because I was in the most, one of the most competitive markets. And so what ended up happening was I I tried to work as an EMT. I taught some dance classes. I translated Spanish, English, et cetera, et cetera, to try to just make ends meet while I was volunteering as a mediator, while I was volunteering TAing classes, while I was just trying to get the enough experience. And I went to every company I could find in Boston. I knocked on their door and I said, please, I'll do anything. Literally, I'll mow your lawn. Like, just give me a chance to be around you and learn from you and have a chance to get my foot in the door. And everyone said no. Mm. The no's ranged from go get a master's degree to we don't have any work to the only job we're going to hire you for is just making slides basically for other professionals, which I was tempted by. But then they actually ended up hiring someone else. So it was a moot point. But it wasn't really a great fit for what I wanted to do. And so at some point, I started just doing freelance work because that was the only work I could get. And it's always in this world, it's always someone gets sick. So I was interning somewhere. I had done some trainings for free. Someone got sick. They were like, we need a trainer tomorrow. And I was like, okay. And so it evolved from there. But then at some point, I had enough of that work that a colleague and I decided to start our own business. Because it was just easier to do that than to get a job remarkably in this field, in this place. And then from there, that business grew and we started to focus our work on mission-driven clients. And so we do a mix of work for a range of clients, but we really seek out organizations that are doing work around environmental sustainability and social justice to say, how can we make you more effective? Through how you negotiate, through how you run meetings, et cetera.
1: That sounds nice. Because we're human beings. We're complicated beings, I guess, right? Yeah. Not only are we
0: complicated, but everything you do requires interpersonal interaction, practically everything you do. And so even like I work with a fair number of tech companies, and most of the people who do computer programming, they'd rather just do that, and Mm -hmm. joyfully so. But the reality is they actually have to interact with other people, and that's the part of their job that is challenging because they're really good at programming. And so even there, even in a role that you don't, like, you're just a programmer. Why do you need the negotiation, meeting, design, et cetera, interpersonal, difficult conversation skills? Because that's the part of your job where there's friction. And getting Mm. that right means doing the part you love becomes easy and straightforward.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So I'm so curious. What was the inspiration for writing Finding a Job That Loves You Back?
0: So there are two answers to this question. There's the what inspired us to do it in the first place. And then the other is what led us to actually finish. Writing a book is much, much more work than I anticipated and a lot more hurdles and craziness. And anyway, so we first were inspired to write the book. It was originally my co-author Carly and I, and then we brought in Tad, were but Carly and I originally were early, early in our careers. Tad was mid-career at that point, which is why we brought him in to say, does this actually work at all phases? But early on, Carly and I were working in the same company, and we were doing a ton of interviews, informational interviews, just to figure out how the space we were in worked. And what we found is that we were able to use... So we were both learning collaborative negotiation skills, and we were able to use the collaborative negotiation skills to get informational interviews, in the informational interviews, in the work we were doing, applying for jobs or applying for subcontracting opportunities. And both of us had this moment of thinking, oh, wait, the thing we're trying to learn as our career is also the thing we should be doing to get work. Very few people are going to be trying to enter the collaborative negotiation field. But Mm. anyone who's trying to get a job, who's trying to get an opportunity, freelance, start your own business, get a job, whatever, would benefit from what we're learning accidentally through the field we're trying to enter. And so we thought, we, we should write this down. We'll share it with the world. And then it took us a really long time. And we were lucky enough to get some crowdfunding for developmental editing. And I think we finished the book because we, we were held accountable by that financial commitment that a bunch of our friends and family had made. And thanks to them, it's a real thing, because I don't think we would have made it without
1: that support. That's so cool. I'm so curious. You mentioned collaborative negotiating. Can you unpack that for us and what it looks like? So,
0: one of the things that this book does that I'm really excited about is it takes an idea, collaborative negotiation, and it delivers it hopefully in a package that people are interested in, which is finding a job that loves them back. That most people, if you say, which I get to say a lot. Say, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I teach negotiation. The first reaction is one of a few things either I don't negotiate, right? Negotiation is only buying cars, buying houses. I'm not doing either of those things right now, I'm negotiating a salary. So that's not me. Or it's negotiation is a terrible thing that some people do to other people. And I don't want to bloody my hands with that horrible work of, and both of those have real truth to them in the sense that most of us don't negotiate financial terms of deals on a regular basis. And it's also true that there is a type of win-lose competitive negotiation, which is quite manipulative by design. Like you're trying to rip someone off. So people aren't wrong, but there is this other part of negotiation, which is collaborative negotiation was designed to answer the question, how can I figure out what matters most to you, share with you what matters most to me, and see if there's something we can do together that works really well for both of us. So it turns out, one, doing that really is good for both of us if you do it with integrity, but also you're doing it all the time. You're doing it when you're trying to get your kid to go to bed on time. You're doing it when you're figuring out with a colleague who's going to take which part in a presentation. You're doing it when you work with a client to design a program that's going to really work for them. You're doing it when you have a manufacturing problem and the timeline is screwed up, and now you need to talk to your operations team and figure out what to do next. All of those are negotiations because you have needs, they have needs, you need to find a solution. And so there's a set of skills around identifying what both people need, around generating options together, around using good objective standards to then make decisions, which is so useful. But because of the stigma around the word negotiation, most people just don't want to touch it. And we're, I don't think we're going to overpower that cultural narrative. And so instead, what we're hoping this book does is give you a comfortable in, which is Mm. conversations. That's comfortable. A job that loves me back. That sounds great. And then through that, you'll learn these skills that are going to make your life So much better in so many arenas, whether you're negotiating with a wedding cake vendor or you're having a conversation with someone you really care about. What's the best way to make sure you spend time together now that one of your jobs is more demanding?
1: That's so real and so important. Um, I'm curious, too, pulling on the thread of like actually writing a book. I Mm. feel like that makes your work more accessible because I think some, to your point, everybody can benefit from negotiating skills and all of this. Everything you said just makes a lot of sense. And I'm thinking, not a lot of folks can maybe afford to hire a okay. consultant to so teach true. them, right?
0: So true. Yeah, you're so on it. And I think for us from a mission perspective, right, we're a B Corp. We're trying to do more than just run a successful negotiation training facilitation consultancy, right? We want to equip individuals and organizations that are creating systems level change around these issues that, that we deem as important around social justice and Environmental sustainability. But as you said, courses are expensive, right? Because it's fee for service. People are paying for our time to design, to deliver. And the courses are great, but most people can't afford them. And so we have been working on figuring out how do we democratize this? How do we make it so it's easier for people to access? And we've tried several different strategies. And this is one that we're so excited about because you can get a book for not that much money. And it will give you the starting point for those tools to then practice. And the other thing that's so exciting about this is you can take, you can, there are lots of great books on negotiation that you can buy and then happy to recommend or put it in the notes afterwards, other things if people are interested, they might check out. And most of those are devoid of context. So they're saying Mm. how to be a good collaborative negotiator. Great. But where? And this is saying, how can you be a good collaborative negotiator? in your career. And that could be getting a job, but it could be even within a job you already have. And so it it has all the context. So you don't need to do that translation while you're also learning a new skill.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious, let's jump into the book. I know the book's broken that process of finding meaningful work into three phases. Mm. Can you give us some top lines of each of those phases and why each are so important?
0: Yeah. And I'm so glad you Called it out as three phases because we write the book in four chunks, but it's really the first and the last are the same. And you're doing three things over and over again, and we write the fourth section around getting clear on what you care about again because doing it that second time it's different. Once you're mid-career, once you have you're established, you're doing the same thing, but you're doing it a different way. But anyway, I got ahead of myself. Let me back up and talk about the three are. So when you're having a collaborative negotiation with someone, if you and I were having a conversation and you said, Justin, I have a conversation I have coming up. I'd like to get some coaching. The first question I'm going to ask you is what's your purpose? Mm. Right? Because your strategy should flow from your purpose. And so for us, we understand your career to evolve through three core purposes. And so each of these sections relates to a purpose and then everything within should be oriented around that purpose. And when I say everything within, you're having different conversations at each stage. So you're always talking to yourself. You're also talking to people who we call connectors. So a connector is someone who can give you information. They can connect you to other people, but they're not going to give you a job. They're giving you insight into the landscape. And then you have decision makers who are people who can give you a job, hire you for a in gig work, work with you to start a new business, whatever. And so... In all three phases, you're going to be talking to all three. You're going to be in conversation with yourself, in conversation with connectors, in conversation with decision makers, but your purpose is going to be different. And so you have to understand that. So what's the first purpose? The first purpose is clarity. So you're having all of those conversations asking yourself, what do I really want? So for me, when I was entering the job world, I was saying, I know I want to try to have impact on things that matter to me. But how do I want to do that? And so I'm having a conversation with myself, but then I'm listening to podcasts like this one to say, okay, what are other people doing? And then maybe I try to reach out to someone and say, hey, I heard you on this podcast. It was amazing. Could I just pick your brain on how did you get there? What did you do? But my purpose for that conversation is to help me get clear on what I might want. Mm. Maybe I take a small, low-stakes I shadow someone for it, you know, or I take a workshop or I do an internship that's not high stakes, not because I'm trying to advance in that career, but because I'm trying to get clear is this something I want to do. It's a real bummer if you go all the way through medical school only to discover that actually really isn't what you want to do. Like getting MT training and then discover that you hate working with people in a medical context, that's a much lower investment. It's still expensive, still takes time, but a much smaller investment. So that's a negotiation with a decision maker but at the stage of clarity. Okay, so let's imagine now you've done that work with yourself, talking to connectors, talking to decision makers, trying, testing a few things out, and you're really clear, right? So I got clear. I want to learn how to do negotiation. I want to learn how to teach collaborative negotiation, facilitation, mediation. And I also want to be a mediator. I want to facilitate. So now I'm clear. The next purpose of so the second phase is Getting access. I can want that. But then I come to you, Ben, you run a business that does this. And I say, Ben, I'd really like to work for you. I'll do anything. I'll mow your lawn. And you're like, I don't know who you are. You have none of the relevant skills. Stop wasting my time. So my next purpose is access. How do I get access? And we talk in the book, we talk about access capital, right? So I need to have certain things. And in every world, they're different, you know? And so I'm sure you could Talk at length about the things in your industry that matter. That if someone came to you and said, Hey, I want to work with you, and they had these things, and maybe it's relationships, maybe it's past experience, maybe it's credentialing, you would instantly say, Yeah, like let's clear my calendar, I want to talk to you. Versus the people who come and they just don't have any of that stuff, and it doesn't, it just doesn't make sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so for me, it was in in my world, you have to have done the thing you're getting hired to do before, which is a horrible, like, what a bad system. Like, how are you ever? How does anyone new enter the field? If I people would always say I was like, I want to I want to run a negotiation training, hire me to run a negotiation training. And they would say, Okay, have you run this training before? I was like, No, but I'm a quick study. And I they're like, No, you know, we're not gonna, that was the bar. And so I had to figure out how to run it at least once. So I could say yes. So I organized trainings, I invited people, I did open enrollment stuff. I did trainings in other places, like I have a relationship with a cooperative in Mexico that does amazing biointensive agriculture work and tree planting. So I ran a mediation training for them in Spanish because they didn't know. And they were like, and again, I did a good job, but it was my first mediation training. But then when someone says, have you run a training? I can authentically and honestly say I have. And now all of a sudden I'm in the door. I'm having those conversations. That's not the access capital though is different in every field. Mm -hmm. And so I, the first thing I have to figure out is I have to work with myself to be flexible and to calm down to not start applying for jobs that I don't have access capital for. Because that's what everyone wants to do, right? They want to be like, I know what I want, you know, start sending resumes into the void. But it's not going to work if you don't have the access capital. And you might get lucky and have it, but you probably don't. And so you negotiate with yourself just to like, whoosh, right? My purpose is access capital. Then I negotiate with connectors to get their time. But to ask them, what is the access capital for this field? Right? If you were me and you wanted to become a negotiation trainer, if you were me and you wanted to become a landscaper, if you were me and wanted to become a nurse, third grade teacher, whatever it is, what are the things you would be figuring out how to do now so that any employer would take me seriously? Mm. That's a very different conversation than where can I find a job? That's coming. But if you don't do this one first, it's just not going to work. And so then... Now I'm having conversations with decision makers who can give me access to the access capital. So in my case, with the training example, I had to find people who would give me a chance to train. And so actually, Tad, my co-author, was one of those people. He was running a training for a relatively low stakes audience. And I said, Tad, can I please co-train with you? What could I do that would make this easier for you? Can we all work for free? Like, just let, give me a chance to try this. And I was able to meet enough of his interests that he let me co train with him on a low stakes project with a client. And I prepared like I have never prepared for anything in my life because I knew I wasn't going to get another shot at that. I did a good enough job that both he then recommended me to other people. And also when people asked, I could say I've run the training. But that's the decision maker in that context to then go to my third purpose, which is get that job that loves you back, right? Find a job that's a good fit for you. So now I'm negotiating with myself to say, Wait, what do I really want out of a job? And like in detail. Do I need to be able to work remotely? Do I want to have flexibility so I can spend time with people I care about? Because I need to actually put that on the table. And then I'm negotiating with connectors to say, "Okay, I really want to work with Ben." So, you know Ben, you've worked with Ben before. What matters to him? How do I actually get a conversation with him? What is the there's that statistic something like 60 to 85% of jobs are found through networking. They're never really posted. <laughs> It depends on who you go to find the statistic, but it's a huge, more than half of jobs are found through networking. And so, if that's true, you really need to learn these skills. And otherwise, you're competing with everyone for a tiny sliver of the jobs that are left. So, I want to find out who is the decision maker? What do they care about? How do I get a meeting with them? That's all stuff connectors can help you find out, right? Because now my purpose is finding that job. And then the last step is I'm going to negotiate with the decision makers. And here I'm trying to shift from the flame frame of supplication. I'm sure you've had this experience, Ben, in in your role in your organization where someone really wants to work with you all and comes and basically just does the like drop to their knees and beg version of, oh my God, I'll do anything, please. I just want to work with you. You know, it's uncomfortable. And because you're like, I don't know who you are. Like you'll pretend to be anyone in order to get this job. I want to know if this is a good fit, not just like hire someone who's desperate. And so you want to frame that conversation around fit. To say, I want to be a really good fit for this role, but I'm not sure if I am and I want to talk to you about it because I don't want to take this job if I'm not going to be able to meet your needs really well. And also, I want to do this because I have needs and I want to make sure the business is a good fit. Let's have that conversation. Is this a fit? How could we make it a better fit? It's such a different experience, both from employer and employee, client, contractor, whatever, to have a fit conversation rather than that sort of supplication. But the thing that you picked up on so astutely is that the book then has this fourth section, which is around fulfillment.
1: Mm.
0: But it's not. It's actually the first section all over again, right? It is only three phases because that last phase is clarity. But now that I have access capital, now that I have a job, you have to take that step back and say, okay, did it work? Is there more that I want? Did I miss something? Have my needs changed? And that might just mean some small tweaks. But it might mean some major changes. And you might be all the way back at the beginning because now you're shif- you're shifting it. You're going from being a professional woodworker to a nurse. That's a totally new career. So yet new connectors, new access capital. Whereas if you're going from teaching negotiation like I am to writing about negotiation in a book like this, that's a pivot. But it's not like a starting from scratch. But that last phase is really just the first phase from a different point of view.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So I'm so curious. What about for folks? Maybe this is somebody, you know, I'm I'm thinking I've got the UNH B Impact Clinic Uh top of mind, right? Maybe this is a student like straight out, you know, straight out of just graduating is like excited to like Mm -hmm. be a change maker, maybe really wants to work for a B Corp. But maybe Mm -hmm. that's all that they know. They're like, I want to create change. How I have no idea. Like, what does that exploration look like? For somebody who's Mm. trying to figure out, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to do something impactful. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's such an important question, and it's a hard question to answer without situatedness. Mm. Because the reality is, if you're graduating with $100,000 in debt and no safety net that you can crash on someone's couch, you have to do that really differently than if you... Have a sibling who's, yeah, have a spare bedroom in New York, come stay with me, you have no debt, figure it out, you know. So mm-hmm. I think there's some general patterns I would describe, but the reality is that we don't live in a society that's fair. And so you are not gonna have the same ability to execute this depending on what the cards you got dealt in life are, and then how you've played them. And so what I would say is that doing career development as a solo sport is a mistake. Mm. I have friends who very ambitiously and with a lot of zeal and focus and excellence applied to a half dozen jobs a day for three months online and like eventually got a role. But that's such a soul sucking An emotionally crushing way to do something that probably isn't going to land you in a job that's actually going to love you back. Whereas if you approach developing your career as a team activity, where you're saying, who are the people who really have insight into who I am as a person? And that's like friends and family, old Mm -hmm. teachers, people you've worked with before. And just have an informal conversation with them to say, I'm trying to, then depends on what phase you're in, trying to get clear, trying to get access, trying to get a job me some advice. Tell me, you'll have to tell them a little bit about who you are and what you care about in order to have that conversation be fruitful. But that conversation is so generative in ways that we just can't plan. I'm a very, I love planning. I can be very structured. And this is one of the things that's been hard for me is to accept that I can't plan this all. There's too much spontaneity and unpredictability and chaos in life. I interviewed hundreds of people early in my career. And the pattern over and over again is, I could never have predicted this. I wouldn't have chosen this up front, but it worked. This random thing happened. Like Careers are not linear for most people. They're not just like plan A goes to B goes to C. That does happen, but it's the vast minority of the people I talked to. And so if you're going to take advantage of that spontaneity, the more people who are in your corner, who have an eye out for you, like the better. So I think the thing though that I would say in terms of situatedness is like your uncle might be the chairman and president of the local hospital. And then you've got an informational interview with someone who really knows what they're doing and connect you really fast. That's very different than if you don't have a set of connections like that. And I will say that from coaching a lot of people from different with different levels of access usually It's only a few degrees of separation of connectors if you're negotiating thoughtfully until you really do get to people who are useful. So I often tell coaching clients there's two criteria for having informational interviews. One, talk to people who are going to be useful. In other words, talk to people who've been where you want to go. The other is talk to people you'll actually talk to. (laughs) And the second one's way more important. And so I might identify that someone's a really good person to talk to, but I'm never going to write to them because I'm terrified or because I don't have access. They're not a good connector for you. Start with someone who you'll actually talk. And so maybe that just means a sibling, a friend, someone who graduated a year or two ahead of you from high school or college. But then say, and if you were me, who would you? Who else might you talk to? And pretty soon, they'll know someone who knows someone and you will get to the people who are able to give you really, really helpful advice. So I, I don't want to pretend that this is going to be equally easy for everyone. Mm. And our experience from coaching and running workshops has been that doing this in a sort of, Team collective way really works. You just might need to make more play, make more moves to get to the humans who are going to be really useful.
1: That makes sense. I have to say that's like one big shout out to the B Corp community. Right? I feel like if you want to connect with people, it's such a welcoming community, yes. and people are so willing to connect, even if there's somebody you don't know. You're like, oh, you want to talk to yes, whoever you know. It's like oh, somebody knows that. That's one of the things I love yeah. about the community. I'm curious for career changers. Is this the same like for those folks who are like. They've been a nurse for twenty years, Mm -hmm. and they're like, "Oh, getting into their mid forties. You know what? I want to be a photographer. Yeah, right.
0: I'm. I don't know if this is. So let me ask you. Okay. How many times have you changed?
1: I guess technically you could say this is like my third career.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And so, in your first career, did you negotiate in your original role for anything, terms, salary?
1: No, honestly
0: and that's the most common thing, right? And so almost everyone we talk to who's in the career change got a job, took it as written without any sense of this is something we're doing together, right? Like employment as a dance between employer and employee, both have needs, and if it doesn't work for one or the other and they have a better alternative, they will leave. But certainly my early experiences, I was just like, okay, those are the terms, great. I guess I'll do this. And most of our coaching clients Have that same experience, and so it's you're changing, but it's also the first time that you're actually moving into a career with a concept of purpose and agency. To say I'm clear on what I want, I'm clear on what I need to have access capital to get it, and now I'm going to go try and get a job and actually really negotiate around that. Mm. And so it is this interesting, and it is it's a real repatterning. And the number of times I've gotten a call from someone who's done all the work, they did such a nice job. And then they get an offer letter and they're like, I should just accept it, right? And I'm like, no, stop, breathe. What do you care about? Does this fulfill this? Does it feel fair? And if the answer is they're, it's not fair, right? There's some objective standard they're not fulfilling or there's something it doesn't, just ask, be like, okay, here's what I think would be fair. Tell me why that's not the number you offered me. Or there's this term that really matters. I need to be able to pick my kids up at three on Tuesdays. If we could rearrange so I had flexibility around that, this would make this much easier for me to say yes to. And so I think that there's actually something really exciting about making the transition if you're mid-career, because one, you're going to have way more access capital. Two, you're going to know a lot more people who are connectors. But then also, you're coming from a place of you're already in a job. And so for a lot of people who are coming out of school, there's this kind of just chasm of just like the void And that's so scary, they'll just take a job. But if you're in a career, you have an alternative, which is the status quo. And unless it's horrible, in which case you you may not keep that job, even if you don't find something, you have something to compare against, which gives you so much more leverage in negotiations and also gives you time to be able to say, look, I'm going to get lunch with a colleague and I'm going to get lunch with someone else while I do my job so that you can really get clear. You can really get access because if you do those two things right, The getting the job part is so much easier, Like In some sense, if you're having a really hard time getting the job, that's a good fit for you. You've done something wrong upstream. Like you're often people solve the I didn't apply to enough jobs or I'm doing the interviewing wrong. It's like, you know, probably you're not clear on what you want or you don't have access capital, because if those two things were true, most of the time those job interviews are easy. They work well and you get hired. And if you're not getting offers, like back up and look at the previous two steps.
1: That makes sense. And we've talked a bit about this already, the collaborative negotiations, this Mm. whole thing that we're talking Mm. about here. And I'm curious, like, why in this context makes it so important?
0: What would how would you answer that question based on what we've talked about so far?
1: Ooh, I'm so good at asking questions. I'm so terrible at answering them. I think I would say. I feel like it's really important because especially with those steps and especially thinking about that, the access capital, yeah. right. That being able to have those conversations with like, Hey, I just want a half hour of your time. I'd be curious to hear your story as to how you got to where you are. Like that's a negotiation, right? Like I'm asking for your time and I'm right. Yes. Yes, exactly.
0: Exactly. And so I think it's two things. One is that the cool thing about this process as collaborative negotiation is all of a sudden you start to see a lot more things as negotiations. So what you just said is a perfect example. I have someone I want to talk to as a connector. I could just write them an email and be like, hey, let's, can I take a walk with you? The number of, I mean, I'm sure you get this too, Ben, where someone will reach out to you and be like, hey, I'd really love to pick your brain. And you're like, I don't know who you are. I don't know why I should talk to you. I have no, We like what, <laughs> you know?
1: Hey team, I just want to jump in and share a, a personal perspective here that I that I think feels really important. You know, as as Justin's talking about those connector conversations, I want to share one first and foremost, always happy to to chat with folks and frequently do and I'll say a lot of those conversations I will own that if folks come to the table and there's not a clear agenda, it can be a little anxiety-inducing or even frustrating if I'm being quite honest. If I've got a super stacked day and I see a 30-minute meeting in the middle of my day and I can't remember who it's with or why – I'm going to be more likely to reschedule that meeting or or push it off to a later time because I don't understand the value or the importance of it on my calendar. Now, if that person has a really clear agenda and I know why I'm going to be talking to them and how I can help them, I'm going to be more eager and excited for that conversation and I'm going to come more prepared and it will better serve that person. Uh, You know, so I think doing a little bit of homework ahead of time that as you're having those connector calls being really clear about what you're hoping to gain out of the conversation and why you're reaching out to that particular person can be really helpful to both you and the person that you're hoping to connect with. Coming with a clear agenda sets you both up for success. I know Justin's going to talk about that a bit more uh, here in our conversation, but just wanted to interject with that little bit of info uh, and hope that that helps and serves you all well. With that, let's jump back in to this conversation with Justin.
0: And for each of us as connectors, we have things that matter to us. You know, like early in my career, I was really struggling to make ends meet. You offer to buy me lunch, I would talk to about literally anything, you know? And, and there were, obviously, there are people for whom like offering to buy them lunch is just like, why would you do that? You know, like that doesn't make any sense, right? And there are people for whom, like I have a couple connector stories. I had a connector who I really wanted to talk to and I knew he was extremely busy and I just wasn't going to get a meeting with him. So I went to a seminar that he was teaching, which I didn't like I wasn't, I couldn't get in. It was like for law students. And I grabbed him on the way out and was like, hey, I've read your book. I really admire your work. I don't want to talk to you, but I know you're super busy. Could I just like walk you to your car? And he was like, yeah, whatever. And so I walked in the car. I, we had a 15 minute informational interview on the way to his car and then he drove off. Like I wasn't going to get time with that person any other way because I knew time value was the most important thing. Mm. Whereas at another person who really cares about mentorship, right, and they really want to support people in the field, which I love and I admire and I appreciate. But it meant when I talked to them, I my email said, "I am trying to enter this field and I'm seeking guidance and mentorship. I would so appreciate your wisdom." And I was completely authentic. That's true. But if someone else I knew wanted. Like friendship, this field can be quite lonely, because once you get good enough, you just go run trainings for other people, and you never really interact with your colleagues. And so that person, I said, like, hey, let, let's go take a walk, just catch up. Like, and I showed up in you know jeans and a t-shirt because friendship was the interest. And so I think that that thing you said is important for two reasons: uh, that the connector conversations are are a collaborative negotiation. It's important for two reasons. The first reason is because. If you don't get that, then you, you kind of miss the whole opportunity because <laughs> you're not going to get meetings with people, right? You're going to way more people are going to say no to you than if you understand what they might care about. And maybe you have to use a connector to understand what another connector's interests are. You know, like, let's say, for example, I know someone who really wants to talk to you. They're not going to get a meeting with you, but they might get a meeting with me because we're friends. They know me. And they say, oh, you've met Ben. What a cool human. Do you have any sense of the kinds of things that might matter to him? Like, how could I get a meeting? And I'd say, well, one, I don't want, I want to make sure you're using his time well. So I don't, like, I'm going to be hesitant to introduce you. But I will say that the B Corp community is really important. And so if you can connect into that somehow, he's more likely to talk to you than if you're just like, hey, I'm a rando, you know? So even there, okay, but I'm off on a tangent. The point is, the first is understanding the interests of the connectors is how you get the meetings, how you make the meetings meaningful, how you make it a real human connection. But the other is, That's not a traditional negotiation. So once you start thinking about connector conversations as negotiations, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm having that argument with my colleague about where we should do the team retreat. That's probably a negotiation, isn't it? And all of a sudden you're kind of broadening the aperture of where it makes sense to start with the question. Why does that matter to you? What's important to you about this? What would success look like? The questions about needs. And then move to a, well, Ben, for this retreat, we're planning, given what you care about, and what I care about, how might we find something that works for both of us? Just that simple frame of what are the needs? What are the strategies? Let's figure that out together. There's so many opportunities when that can make us come up with much better, more interesting outcomes that we just skip because we don't realize that it's an opportunity to have a collaborative negotiation. And so that piece that you said, when I asked you, like, how would you summarize it is that it's actually, we think of the negotiation as just the endpoint, the salary, but it's happening all the way along. And that's the realization. That's the sort of covert mission of the book is for that when people read it to say, oh, wait, this is happening everywhere. It's all around me. And all of us want to be seen and heard to have our needs met, to be able to find meaning and value in our lives. And so when you start engaging people in that way of saying, I recognize you have legitimate needs. I do too. Let's figure this out together. It shifts from what our culture tends to be such a competitive, conflictual process, careers and everything else. So many things we can end up in this sort of competitive mindset that you can really transform the nature of your relationships through shifting into this frame.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And so I'm curious if someone's listening right now and they're like, okay, that all sounds great. Super down for this whole journey. And networking with humans scares the life out of me. Oh, yeah. And like, I can't imagine asking somebody to spend a half hour with me for me to ask them about their story. Right. What would you do if you were in their shoes?
0: Nice. I love turning my own questions, our questions back on us. Everyone is different. And so I'll tell you my experience. And I think Carly and Ted, I know Carly and Ted would share this. So one of the things that we have, all three of us have found most terrifying is setting up a meeting with no purpose. Mm. I I, I remember I had someone introduce me to one of the like luminaries in the negotiation field, like one of the top people was a major academic, written 25,000 books, like Really intense person. I didn't ask for the intro. They're like, "Oh, I know this person might be helpful to you," and then just sent an email. I was like, "Hey, I think Justin would like to meet you." And they were friends, and so the academic wrote back. I was like, "Sure," and I was like, "Oh, no. I have no, I don't need anything from this person. I have nothing to offer them. I'm just wasting their time. Like, I do not want this meeting." <laughs> and I wrote back and I said basically, "I don't want to waste your time. I, I, why don't I reach out to you when I have something like worth talking about." because there's, I don't have a purpose here, and just freaked out and froze. I probably could have made good use of that meeting if I had a purpose, but I didn't. And so I, for me, what has been most helpful is to say, one, why am I talking to you? If I can't answer that question, let's not talk. And then the second is have a structure for the meeting. The number of times I've had people, because I get asked for informational interviews a fair amount, the number of times I've had someone show up to the meeting and be like, yeah, so... Uh, And I'm like, you asked for this meeting. And they're like, give me advice for me. And I'm like, I don't know anything about you. Like, how could I possibly have advice for you? And so what we have found is that having a structure is really helpful. Being willing to lead the conversation can be really scary. I'm fresh out of school. I'm talking to some serious professional who's deigned to spend time with me. And I'm running the meeting. But yeah, you're running the meeting. And so having a structure and what we found to be most helpful is a structure. People love to talk. And they love to be listened to. And so we almost always start with some version of just tell me your story. Like, how did you get where you are? And then just listen and ask questions and be interested. And people love talking about themselves. And anyway, so that goes really well. And then you need to tell them a story about who you are and ask them for their advice. Because if you don't have a story, they don't, they won't give you good advice. If I just came to you and said, Ben, I really want to get into the B Corp community. What advice do you have for me? Like, you don't know anything about me. You don't know anything about me. And again, what I was saying earlier about situatedness. You don't know how I'm situated. You don't know what my challenges are. You don't, like, how, how could you possibly give me useful advice? It's just random. And so you have to tell a story, but again, prepare that in advance. Like I would write them out ahead of time. I'd bring them with me because I'm talking to people who make me nervous, but I knew that all I had to do was say, tell me your story, listen and be an interested human, which is, I can handle that, then share my story. And I sometimes would even say... I wanted to really get make the best out of it. So I actually wrote out what I wanted to share with you about my background. I'm going to read it because I'm nervous. That was okay. And then ask the question that you just asked me, which is, if you were me, what would you do? And that's it. So all I have to remember is two questions and a story. And that really helped for me. Every informational interview I went into, I just followed that structure. And they were amazing. And they went all kinds of different places. But I was able to say to the person I was talking to, I want to use your time well. And so, my proposal is I'd like to hear about how you got where you're going because I think that's going to be super helpful. And you know, things I don't even know I should be asking. I want to share a little bit about who I am again. And in general, people are really grateful that you have a plan and they'll let you drive.
1: That's amazing. I love that. And speaking of storytelling, I noticed that there is a chapter in the book all about Mm. developing someone's own personal story. Yeah. Why is developing that personal narrative so important?
0: Okay. This is something that, again, I will sometimes backseat drive informational interviews when someone comes to me and it's hi help and I'm like okay let's just rewind a little bit tell me a little about yourself so I can be helpful. The two mistakes I see most frequently are one people just they just tell you random stuff about themselves. It's not doesn't orient me towards helping you. Stories are such an exciting opportunity to connect. If you get the opportunity to speak with someone who you think and honestly, you get the opportunity to speak with anyone. But especially if you speak with someone where it's like a high stakes conversation, do your research. Find out what do you have in common? What kinds of things have you both been interested in? What experiences, geography, anything? All of our bios are hours and hours and hours long if you really get into it. Third grade, I showed an aptitude for the clarinet. And blah blah blah. <laughs> you don't know, that's a long. But if you are a concert clarinetist and we're talking about mountain climbing that might actually be an interesting point of connection. You don't need to know that if you don't have that. So the first is, what's going to bring you closer to the other person? So the first thing we talk about when you tell a story is your bio, which should be like three sentences, but which three sentences? So find things that will allow you to connect. But the other thing that people do, and this happens to me all the time, is people come and be like, oh, I really want to get into digital marketing. I'm like, cool. And I studied digital marketing in college. I'm applying to jobs. I got two internships, and this is blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, sounds like you got this all figured out. What? Why are you talking to me? And so if you don't frame a problem for your connector to help you solve, mm. you, you're not going to make good use of that conversation. And now what's my problem? Well, my problem is going to relate to one of those three core purposes of which phase I'm in. So my problem is either I'm not clear on what I want. My problem is I don't know what the access capital is, or I don't have the access capital. Or my problem is I'm trying to figure out who the decision maker is and get a meeting with them or convince them to hire me, right? So I know the model gives me a problem. And so my work then is to say, okay, here are my core needs, right? Here are my interests in negotiation language, but here are my core needs and here are the constraints. Here's what I'm up against. And based on that, what advice do you have? So it ends up being a structure that says, all right, here's a little bit about who I am. And then says, I really care about being able to restore old castles. That's my passion. am really excited about restoring old castles. And my specific interests are I want to do it in a place where I speak the language. Because there are a lot of old castles in places that don't speak English, but I only speak English, and it's important for me to connect culturally. And I also really want to be able to spend time learning about the place before I go. So I'm trying to figure out, like, how do I do some research before I go? And my constraint is, I have two years until I'm planning on applying to go to law school. And so I'm trying to figure out, is there something that's time-bound that I can do that would allow me to pursue this passion of mine? My problem is, so now, if I'm at the clarity stage, my problem is, this all sounds a little crazy. I'm not sure this is a good idea. I would love, if you were me trying to vet if this is a good idea or not, how would you do that? Or, Mm. I've gotten clear I want to do this. And so now the question is, where do I find what does someone who does this need to do? Like, there are people who restore castles. If I called one of them and said, hey, I want to help, under what circumstances would they take me seriously? What is the access capital? How do I get it? Or it's, I know what I need to do to be taken seriously. I found a castle in Scotland. I found the person who's the decision maker. I think you might know them. What do they care about? How could I get a meeting with them? It? So the story then is going to shift at that last part, which is the what would you do if you were me? I need to give you some context to say, here's the problem I'm solving. And if you don't give me a problem, and I think it's a lot of people want to look like they're, they're well organized, they're put together. And so they try to present like they figured everything out. But actually showing up not having figured everything out is a much better place to create human connection. And also for someone to be able to be useful to you, imagine what would it be like to have that problem? How would I solve that?
1: And then you have these really fun conversations. So I'm curious, is this process, this kind of like three-step approach applicable to folks who maybe they love their company, like Uh they love where they're at, but maybe they don't love like their specific role. And they're trying to find their place in this company that they love. Can they use this in that situation as well, you think?
0: Absolutely, yes. And I wouldn't like keep the book on your desk. finding a job (laughs) that loves you back. So the framing will change, but the skills are basically the same, right? So that let's imagine I'm in a role at a business and I'm working on sustainability. And I I got hired into a role that is doing director level work, but I'm clear that if I'm really going to do this job well, I need to be the chief sustainability officer. And there's no one in that role. Like I'm not replacing someone. So now I'm trying to ask myself first, am I clear that's really a job I want? What would need to be true for that to really be good for me? Then I have to figure out access. So maybe I go talk to HR and I'm like, okay, how does one move from being a director to being a C-suite role? Or maybe I talk to the CEO or the president and say, I'm pretty clear that this is a thing I want. What would need to be true? What is the access capital? In essence, that's required for me to get there. And then I go get all that access capital and I come back and I say, hey, I did the thing you said I need to do. I'd like to be the Chief Sustainability Officer. And again, people make that same mistake where they either go for something, they either don't do anything, or they go for something without being really clear it's what is important to them, what's important to them, why. Because again, they might say, no, I can't offer you that role for whatever reason. But if I understand why you want it, I might be able to give you something else that gives you what you want, even though I can't give you the specific demand. And then, or people go in and ask for the thing. Without having done any of the access capital work, and then they should got to no know and are frustrated and quit the job when they could have actually gotten what they wanted if they'd taken the time to understand the other person's interests. Access capital is another way of saying, what does the industry need in order for their needs to be met so that then they're eager to meet your needs? So it's absolutely applicable, but it's going to look a little different. The players are going to be a little different. And the framing is obviously can't be like, how do I find a new job? Because people will not be very happy about that.
1: Right. That makes sense. So there's this term that we keep using and I I, I feel like it's just important to get really clear on it. Access capital. Mm. We've talked a lot about access capital in the context of relationships, Mm. right? This person knows somebody or what have you. But it sounds like, and tell me if I'm understanding this right, access capital can also be professional training or a degree or experience. Or is that right? I mean, my understanding access capital correctly there?
0: Yeah, and I would say the first piece around access to people could be access capital, but it's more likely the latter stuff that you were talking Mm. about. And so specifically, I would answer the question, what is access capital like this? Pick a job, like an industry. Media. (laughs) Media, great. So if (laughs) I wanted to enter media, I wanted to work in the media world, what needs to be true of me? So if I was applying to work with you, what would you be looking for to say? Oh, this conversation is worth my time.
1: Yeah, it would be interesting to see, like, if you created anything, like, even just for fun, right? Yeah. Like, if it was even just like a, you know, if you're like, oh, I, re- I record friends for fun or whatever. Yes, I yes. I, do, I do video projects for fun yes. or, I yes, don't know, a portfolio. It. I guess right would that's be a great a perfect.
0: That's a perfect example
1: because demonstration of past
0: creative work is access capital in that space. Demonstration of past effective work is not access capital if you want to be a doctor. You can't be like, hey, look at this video of a surgery I did on my cat. That is, no one cares. (laughs) You're going to get in trouble, but you're not going to get a job. Whereas in this field, in the field in media, past, demonstrated past creative talent, that's access capital. And so that's the thing is, in some industries, it's who you know. If you don't know someone, there's, some industries, there's literally one person who's like a kingmaker. And if you are not good in good with that person, it's just you're not making it in. In some industries, it's a group of people, right? In some industries, it's you. If you don't have a relationship with an agent and you're trying to become an actor, like the access capital is a high quality agent. That's part of it. But then you also need some places, it's credentialing. Sometimes, but so I think it's in the thing that's important to remember is in every field, it's going to be different. So I can't tell you it's, oh, it's get a master's degree. We don't know, but again, talking to you, I could get a quick list of three things I would need to do to have a chance in media of being able to actually get taken seriously. And if I show up having gone and gotten a master's degree I didn't need without a creative portfolio, and then telling you I know someone who you don't think is relevant, what am I doing? But if the thing is that creative portfolio plus a real passion for the subject, How could I demonstrate that? How can I bring the career portal? Now we're talking, right? So I think Mm -hmm. that's the, I'm glad you asked the question because access to capital can just sound like, do I know the right people? And really what we're trying to say is, what are the things that are the sort of the the hurdles? Uh, Maybe that's too, uh, too much, like it's intentionally obstructionist. Sometimes it does feel that way. But what are the things, the metrics against which I will be evaluated to determine if I can make it through to talk to a decision maker? If these things are true of me, if I have the credentialing, I have the relationships, I can demonstrate my creative portfolio, whatever it is, then I'm going to be able to have a conversation with a decision maker. right? So that's, the, that's what access capital is.
1: Oh my gosh, I love that. This is amazing. Justin, any final thoughts or words of wisdom you want to leave folks with?
0: I'm just so grateful that you all do this. I think that these conversations with businesses are, in essence, a form of informational interview where you're asking us about our experiences, how we got here. And it creates a way for people to answer some of the questions that they can answer in this book, but in a mass access way. If I want to learn about the UN development goals, I could go interview someone or I could listen to you interview someone and I'm going to get a lot of really useful information. So I just want to say I think there's real overlap in this. And what you all are doing is such a service to anyone who wants to enter the mission driven space because it's complicated. It's hard to understand. It's hard to navigate. And unless we have resources, this is anyway. So I just want to say I'm grateful to that you chose to have me on to talk to you, but also that you do this because I do think this is a form of connector work writ large in what you all are doing.
1: Thank you so much. Well, and it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on. So thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you want to learn more about Justin or how you can find a job that loves you back, check out the show notes for links to where you can find a copy of the book and learn more. Also, for those longtime listeners, you've probably noticed some changes around here on the Responsibly Different show. We've started developing more series and various shows within this channel, including Curious Coworkers, where my fellow impact strategist, Brittany Angelo, and I chat about how we navigate using purchasing power for good. And this past January, we launched our very first series on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Moving forward, we'll be developing more series for you and intermittently dropping in these impact chats between those series. If you're enjoying this content, please share it with a few of your friends and leave us a review. Till next time, be responsibly different. This content is made possible by Dirigo Collective, a media consultancy on a mission to turn consumers into activists, one purchase at a time. To learn more about Dirigo Collective, visit the link in your show notes. This episode was produced by yours truly, Ben Marine. Music was licensed from the B Corp certified Marmoset Music. To access more resources, visit responsiblydifferent.com.